Welcome to the debate at Newsweek. I'm Andrew Tallman. Joining me today, we have Amani Wells and Yoha. She is the political organizer and director of operations at Soul Strategies. Also, Pamela Denise Long, who is a columnist and CEO of Youth Centrics. Welcome back to the debate. Good to see you again. Yes, thanks for having us. Great to have you. So we obviously have seen some changes go on in Congress, and one immediate, apparently, byproduct of that is that Representative Buddy Carter of Georgia uh, is going to be reintroducing the Fair Tax Act as what is apparently part of the trade, a consumption tax. Uh, I think details yet to be decided on a lot of this, but uh, radical revamping of the entire tax code for sure. Let's start with you, Amani. What do you think of this idea? Um, I think it's easy to think like, oh my God, no one likes the IRS. This is a great move. Um, but when we get into the weeds of things, I think it's going to make it even harder for us to hold some of the most wealthiest people in our society accountable for their taxes. Um, I think that they already do a great job at kind of maneuvering around certain tax codes and certain tax liabilities and scooting around actually having to pay their fair share. So I think this is going to be a way for them to be able to do that even further and they're kind of putting it in this cloak of, um, you know, hiding behind IRS being the bad guy. But in actuality, I think it's going to protect some of the people who need to be held accountable the most. So just just quick follow up, because I want to make sure I get where you're coming from. You think that they would be even less susceptible to taxation under that than under the current system. And I ask only because my perception is that right now, wealthy people are very, very good at manipulating both the laws and uh, the, 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 you know, the formation of the law and the use of that law in order to avoid taxes right now. But you think it'd be even worse under uh, a consumption or a sales or a VAT or something like that? Definitely. I think it's already a pretty crippled tax system as is. So continuing to deallocate funds from that department, I don't think will be beneficial and I don't think will help us get any more closer to tax justice, if you will. Denise, what's your general take on this proposal? Yeah, so I found the proposal interesting, and I know they've been talking about it for a while. It's been interesting to sort of study the history of there being an actual national income tax. Um, I, I didn't know the year which that started, which was 1913, and the fact that uh, sort of the first uh, income tax was to fund the Civil War, and I believe that lasted for only 10 years or so. Um, so I understand in listening to the Republicans who've proposed this as well as, you know, economists who've discussed it, that what would be required, obviously, would be a rewriting of the tax code. And as it stands right now, um, the way the tax code is written, you can have a certain amount of allocations and expenditures that would essentially reduce your tax burden. In addition to the fact that from a personal level, um, you know, the wealthiest of the wealthy, you know, the way that they live is that they don't necessarily get income, they actually get loans, and then they can deduct the cost of, of that as well. So with this consumption tax, there would be a rewriting of the tax code, it will be interesting to see how they exempt basic living expenses, such as, you know, food, shelter, water, clothing, utilities, those types of things, if that would be a part of it. But I would imagine that someone who's making I don't know, a million dollars a year, um, certainly spends more on higher end products, consumes more higher end products than would your average American. Uh, and certainly, you know, someone who's making minimum wage. So 
And that way, I think they would probably pay more in taxes. And what that would do is allow what the consumption tax would do and, and the doing away with an income tax would do is allow Americans who are stuck living paycheck to paycheck to have more money in their pockets to do the stuff that drives the economy, including making ends meet, obviously, but also investing in their businesses and growing those businesses, my goodness, even investing in their retirement, which we know uh, is a huge, significant problem considering the percentage of Americans who can afford, small percentage, relatively half, can afford a $1,000 uh, expense. That's a set of tires. So Yeah, one of the things that, uh, you know, flat tax so-called advocates have said over the years is this incentivizes saving because you're mm -hmm. not getting, you know, your savings is 100%. Whereas if you consume something and you spend it on any kind of a purchase, you're getting something less than that. Let's imagine the figures are around 20% because the estimates have been mm -hmm. different over the years, anywhere from 15 up to above 20. But, you know, 19 to 20, um, uh, the international average for consumption taxes seems to run around 20%. Some are a little higher than that. Some are a little bit lower. But yeah, Amani, uh, you know, Denise's point is that right now, because of the definition of income or the various ways in which income can be, um, uh, I don't know, fiddled with, so to speak, to make it not mm -hmm. appear on, uh, you know, your income sheet. The idea that when you spend it to to buy something, you're going to have to pay on that. That's simpler for the consumer. It's mm -hmm. going to capture, obviously, uh, it's still a little bit progressive in the sense that higher end people are going to spend more on the things that they spend on. Um, one of the things that appeals to me is just the compliance costs go away. Mm -hmm. You know, all of the right. hours that all of us spend mm -hmm. doing our taxes, figuring out the tax code, all of that would go away. Does that slice appeal to you at all? A little bit, but I'm, I have to be weary, you know, um, just because of who is proposing, um, this particular bill, right? A lot of these people are being paid, um, or their campaigns are being paid by some of the people in who, who would benefit the most from changing of a tax of the tax code. So because of that, my eyebrow is raised a little bit. Um, and then as far as the income taxes are concerned, I do agree that a lot of everyday Americans spend so much of their paycheck on income taxes. And if the bill is applied evenly to all Americans, not just the wealthiest of Americans, but if everybody gets their income tax is reduced, including everyday Americans, including those who make beneath, I think it was like the $400,000 a year threshold, and we can all kind of have a break in that regard, then I could see it being a positive thing. But I just would like to see what exactly these uh, tax increases or these tax changes are going to be as the bill is applied before I can really take a sigh of relief or feel completely comfortable supporting the bill. Yeah, I, I get your kind of, you know, it'd be a huge shift. And anytime you're talking about a huge shift, especially when you're skeptical about the motives and or the people offering the shift, it's like, mm -hmm. well, the talk is fine. What does it look like? I, I've lived uh, for a little while. I was a bartender in England for a little while. So I've lived under not a national sales tax exactly, but a VAT tax at the time. Mm -hmm. And you know, it was simple. What I, I for me, what I liked is um, and they, I, if I recall, I think there was income tax as well. But, you know, I just recall everything being very easy. It was very yeah. simple, very straightforward. Now, Denise, one of the concerns that gets raised about this is specifically impact on the poor, because we know that yeah. people at the low end of the spectrum are spending a higher share of their income on consumables and so the argument has historically been that a flat tax winds up being a kind of regressive tax, not by the numbers overall, but in the sense that 
people making, say, $40,000 a year certainly spend more of their income on consumables than the people spending, you know, a million or earning a million dollars a year. Do you think it'd be fair to those people to have to pay more in taxes, essentially, under this system if it turns out that way, Denise? So I think that's implementation is everything, right? As a consultant, definitely that is true. And so this is where the piece about what is exempt from consumption. Should we really tax Americans for paying for the cost to have a roof over your head and paying for utilities within that structure? I would think not. There's certainly, I think, uh, necessities of living and perhaps even food, right? Certain certain types of food, you can even say, uh, should be, you know, exempt um, from, from the consumption tax. So if that is part of it and more luxury um, discretionary spending, if you will, um, is what falls within the consumption tax, then I could see how that would actually be a benefit to uh, to Americans where you're not, you have more money to spend when you come to the store because you're not actually paying the amount in taxes and how that would accumulate as well. And here's another thing I want to mention here. You know, it was remarkable to me that when President Biden's expansion of the child uh, uh, credit payments from January of 21 to December of 21, when those ceased, the data from January of 2022 was astounding that they reported that uh, Columbia University reported a 41% increase in child poverty. Just with that small amount of money, $200 to $300 per child coming into a household, I would imagine that the average American between the cost of gas, the cost of having your phone, uh, the cost of food and, and lunches and the like, you probably spend a couple $300 a month or, or more, depending on what you purchase, uh, in taxes on basic living expenses to give that money back to the American uh, public, uh, to the American consumer and household, I think would be important to addressing those issues that these sort of give and take credits just don't serve. Yeah, you know, one of the things uh, in some of the reading that I've done, the recommendation appears to be not to single out particular goods as exemptions, but instead to have things be across the board equal because of the market distortions that come about when you try to pick and choose winners and losers in the mm -hmm. tax code. But instead to come in on the back end and still try to have some kind of payments, credits, reimbursements for people who are at the low end of the income scale, because then you don't have different goods and services being taxed at different amounts. Um, so I think their solution is not actually to uh, prioritize or preference, for example, housing or uh, food or something or pain medication or whatever, but instead to just be more helpful in terms of social safety net as maybe direct payments or credits or something like that. Um, Amani, when you think about this, like just sort of in an overall sense of getting rid of the IRS, which of course is the selling point for the Republicans, yes. right? Is everybody hates the IRS. Everybody yeah. hates dealing with them. We no mm -hmm. longer would have to pay to have them. And they're terrible at their jobs. I don't mean like individually. I mean, mm -hmm. in an overall sense, they're way behind on catching people, right? That's Correct. the problem is so much tax scofflaw goes on right now. Mm -hmm. One of to me, one of the appeals is this would be more in terms of catching everybody. You know, you'd eliminate kind of black market sort of stuff. You would people mm -hmm. who make income illegally, whatever. Um, right. Do you think there'd be more in that that it would be reduction of compliance, and mm -hmm. also you just get more people paying the tax because it's just everything you buy to consume is going to be taxed? Um, yes and no. 
My fear is, although the regulation that the IRS provides is very weak, my fear is that once they are removed, that certain people will feel like I'm free, I'm clear, I'm going to do my thing. Like it kind of just opens the door for people to become even more uh, willing to violate whatever this new code may be. So it's just, it's a few things that make me nervous here about all of this. Um, There's so many parts of our everyday system that are privatized, such as even our utilities, even these things that we need, that we would hope that would get, um, you know, waived in our taxes or things, things that we would hope that we could get credits for. So much of that is privatized. And then so much of that privatized industry is in our politics. So there's just so many routes where I can see this going drastically wrong um, that it makes me so weary that I would hope that if we put a system like this in place, then there's going to be certain um, regulations that help us on the political side and with the people who are making those decisions in the House, in the Senate, and put certain parameters into place so that they can't engage in certain aspects of that industry, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, and it's actually kind of an interesting uh, situation where so much of the rest of the world does it this way, right? Mm -hmm. They have either VAT or sales or both Mm -hmm. uh, value value added tax for people who aren't familiar, where every step along the way, when you add value to the product, you get taxed or versus the sales tax where it's only on the end consumption. Here you have Republicans saying something that you almost never hear Republicans say, which is, let's be like the rest of the world. <laughs> and that <laughs> makes me nervous. But, Why but, do y'all feel like that? <laughs> but the, uh, the flip side is if the rest of the world can pull this off, um, <laughs> you know, maybe it's not such a terrible idea. I'll give you the last word on this, Denise, before we switch topics. Uh, final thoughts? Yeah, I think the impetus for Republicans is one of conservative uh, principles, which is liberating the American consumer from the absolute fear and paralysis of checking the wrong box, uh, claiming the wrong tax credit, uh, making an error, and suddenly you find yourself in an audit. And that has been the issue that people who are on the lower end, relatively under $200,000 of the income uh, spectrum, are more likely to be audited uh, than folks who are in that sort of vast middle. And also, you know, freeing people from the burden of uh, an influence of government in our daily lives. You mentioned the burden of actual compliance, keeping receipts and, and all of that kind of stuff and having to pay people. Uh, to do your taxes if you don't know how to do it yourself or it's just better to. But there are plenty of Americans, not a whole lot, but enough. If you're one of the thousand people who get indicted for tax evasion and one of the 500 or so who get sent to jail for, uh, you know, whatever kind of mistake those folks are indicted for, then that's a big deal for you. And to do away with the fear of that because um, you are not relying on your tax preparer or the automated software that you use or your own calculations when you consume you are taxed then and the mechanisms for getting that money from point of sale to the actual government coffer uh, is one that they would have to work out but it has nothing to do with your freedom um, as an American and avoiding jail time for for an honest mistake or the hassle for an honest mistake yeah I, I know just from a very selfish point of view I would love to not have to do taxes <laughs> <laughs> I would like that weekend in uh, you know March typically back <laughs> from mm. every year that would be great I, I will also say I have concerns you know and I'm with you Amani mm. in terms of 
when we're going to put this massive of a disruption in the way we do governmental fundraising business at taxes, um, I, I don't know what it's going to mean for companies who have invested based on the tax code, for charities who might depend on the tax deductibility of the things that come into their revenue, or uh, even, you know, like I work in radio, we depend on advertising. Advertising is a business deduction for most companies. If they can no longer deduct advertising, how does that change whether they're willing to buy it or not? I mean, these are all factors that, uh, you know, it's very appealing and simple. There's a lot of questions I have, but I do kind of land on the, it's going to save me a lot of time and Europe manages to do it. Maybe it's not terrible. <laughs> so maybe I'm the, maybe I'm the naive optimist, but you know, I've been accused of worse things. When we come back on the debate, another interesting proposal from the Biden administration, uh, the federal trade commission is actually proposing getting rid of all non-compete clauses, including the ones that are already in existence. We'll talk about it on the debate. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to the debate. Joining me today, we have Amani Wells and Yoha and Denise Long. Uh, ladies, very interesting proposal that I didn't even realize was out there in the works, but the Federal Trade Commission comes out last week or maybe this week, I guess, and says, oh, hey, we're going to get rid of non-compete clauses. There's and now it's not implemented yet. And for people who might not be familiar with non-compete clauses, the idea that if I work at a job uh, like, for example, in radio, these are very common in media. You work at this radio station and they put you under a non-compete clause against going across the street within the same market for maybe six months if you lose your job. But but non-compete clauses have been put in for like security guards and fast food workers and all kinds of people that you wouldn't normally think this would even be relevant for. And they say this is a ridiculous infringement on competition. It's costing us money and job mobility and on and on and on. I, they want to do away with it and including the ones that are currently in existence. And you'd have to tell your employees, hey, this no longer applies to you. We've been told we can't do this by the federal, by the federal government. Denise, your thought to this proposal. Well, so there are a couple of things, right? And I think there's nuance to it. I think uh, when there could be situations where a person working inside of an organization with a, a, a sensitive level of access to information, also freelancing at, with a competitor, there is there's a threat there for the organization. So I could see why an organization would want to limit the employee's ability to do that. However, when you get to the point where you're preventing me from accepting a certain job after I have left your employee, then you are infringing upon my rights as a citizen, as an employee, and you are impacting innovation um, and the economy. So the nuance there is, are there situations where a 
restricted uh, competition is appropriate because of security purposes for the organization where you would create unfair competition, uh, depending on, you know, you work inside one org and you're on the board at another, that could be a problem. But in terms of employers limiting your ability to move freely within the economy and within the workplace options after you have left their employee, and in some cases, even when you're in their employee, I've signed non-competes as a healthcare professional, which makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, I generally don't even accept now at this point, um, any kind of contract that has a sort of non-compete in it because I feel that it's inappropriate and I don't wanna be restricted in that way because I do have character where I would never trade secrets um, between organizations. Right, right. Oh, and by the way, I'm the guilty party. I have the Australian Shepherd puppy who was barking. So sorry. <laughs> about that. Um, but yeah, no, this is the classic argument for the non-competes, right? Is um, you, in order to make you a productive employee, either we train you or we give you access to information that could be used to benefit our competitors. And so it's in the company's interest that you not take that information across the street or those capabilities across the street. Um, but at the same time, I don't, I'm kind of with Denise in the sense, like I've never signed a non-compete as an employee or a contract laborer and thought, man, that really helps me. <laughs> they are always, <laughs> always for the benefit of the employer. And now that they've been abused so much, I mean, I was amazed to find some of the occupations where they're using non-compete clauses where it just makes no sense whatsoever. Amani, your, your thoughts? Yes, um, I'm with you all. And this is a very, very nuanced situation. I am pro non-compete. This is probably my just bias as being a business owner, but I'm pro non-compete within a certain capacity. Like there is a time and a place. Do I feel like everyday workers with their everyday jobs need to be signing non-competes? Like I said, in the healthcare industry, what are you, what are you gonna do with like how? <laughs> you know, if you're working in the food service industry, even if you're a teacher, there are certain things where Unfortunately, this intellect is coming with me, whether you taught me or not. Um, but there are certain situations where, like we're saying, for the basis um, for I'll just speak for myself in the startup environment. If we are if you come into an organization, it's the very beginning. We are building and you are a part of a whole lot of stuff that we do not want other people knowing about or we don't want you per se going uh, to steal a client of ours as we're building a relationship with that client or something like that. There are some areas where it's like, OK, a non-compete makes sense. Um, but at the same time, I think that there should be fair parameters around it. I've seen like like you were saying, there's crazy stuff of like year long non-competes. Like so they're just I'm just not supposed to eat for a year because I right, like this right. job. like that's not realistic. So I think that um, the reason why the FTC is taking such a strong stance is because some organizations have taken these non-competes to like the nth degree to where it no longer is even reasonable or makes sense. So, yes, protect your business, protect your business secrets. And if you have to have some type of documents to do that, absolutely. Like you got to hold down the fort. At the same time, people have to live and people still have to provide a livelihood for themselves and their families. So just be reasonable and understand with that. Yeah, I'm I'm I agree. I think there are cases where it makes sense mm -hmm. and I think this uh movement by the FTC is really a reaction against the abuse of the non-competes. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like if the teenagers would all behave but then it seems like they're all really, you know, be misbehaving <laughs> after midnight so we're going to put a curfew <laughs> and affects everybody even the good ones. Um, so that's 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 my concern about it. One thing is I I I do worry that in sweeping them all away the FTC might be using too broad of a brush. And the one thing that uh, occurred to me while I was thinking about this today is maybe if instead, and I don't, I don't think I've ever heard of this, maybe it does happen and I'm just ignorant of the fact, but 
it seems like if you're going to make me not be able to work, you ought to pay me. So Maybe. the duration of a non-compete should be the same as the duration of you paying me. You know, if it's important to you to keep me off of the competitor's employment roles, then mm. pay me to stay off of those roles. You know, uh, you're going to we're going to part ways and I'm not going to work for six months, but pay me. Uh, that seemed, and I've never seen a non-compete that's structured that way, right? But that would seem to kind of solve the issue of, well, how do you work? <laughs> While also maybe protecting information and invested skills and talents. It, again, I ask the question frequently, but am I too naive to think that that would be a solution to the problem, Denise? No, I, I like it. Uh, if you're going to ask me, especially in a restricted market, right? There are some markets where there are a couple or three places, really big businesses that have that market share. And if you're yeah. telling me that I can't work in those markets, you're basically telling me I'm going to have to move. So uh, that feels appropriate. In addition to the fact that just in general, after I leave your employee, you should have absolutely no uh, say, uh, especially contractually, about uh, if and, and where I work. But I, I appreciate the idea that if you are going to restrict my movement as an employee, as a worker, then you need to compensate me uh, during that time. Now, then you get into calculations of what is that um, sure. and how long should that be and things of that kind of sort. Yeah, no, I uh, agree. Um, it just kind of, it seems it's a very one-sided thing. And, you know, the mm -hmm. basic rule in contracts is both parties have to get something out of it. If mm -hmm. I'm the, you know, contract E, uh, you know, or, you know, I'm the, 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 the employee, you know, what do I get out of the non-compete? And the answer is, well, nothing, <laughs> you know, you don't really get much out of it. Amani, I tell you one other concern that I have about this, because I'm always trying to think, you know, what could go wrong? You know, that's mm -hmm. our job when we think about these things. Um, and so let's say this does everything it's supposed to do. It increases mobility. It increases wages because people are able to either seek the better wage at the place across the street or their employee or employer in fear hire, offers them more to keep them, which would be great. You know, that would be a benefit. But OK, now people are making more money. Somebody has to pay for the increased labor. Those mm -hmm. costs get passed on to the end consumer. Is it possible that something like this would actually make price inflation worse because it's going to tend to drive up wages. You would generally think a good thing, but in the aggregate, does that wind up harm harming consumers as well? Um, it's, it's possible. It's definitely possible. My biggest thing with this is I just want the FTC to take a more, not palatable, but a more... Um, <laughs> A more common sense approach. Like, are there flaws in the system? Yes. Do we need to do away with it completely? No. I think there should be some phase of testing, some type of way to figure out exactly what is harmful to the employee and what is fair to the employee and employer. So I think there's a way to go about this that doesn't completely um, set the economy ablaze. Like, I feel like that's kind of the theme of today is like, we get rid of FT, we get rid of non-competes. <laughs> it ain't no IRS no more. It's like, right. can we just not do everything all at once? Can we just kind of, let's see, you know, let's make some incremental changes. Let's weigh our options. Let's see how things play out. Um, I think there's a I way mean to offend you but you sound like a conservative i mean I, you and you know what's so funny i need to get it on this call i said i'm gonna be the most conservative one on this issue 
because I like um, like Denise was saying, like she may have good character, but I'm telling you, not everybody does. There are some people who join organizations on purpose to steal secrets. Like I come across these people all the time. So although and I'm very naive sometimes when I'm doing stuff in business, because I just want to believe like you came here to learn. We are growing. I'm paying you well. We making money. It's all good. But there are some people whose intentions just aren't pure. So we have to be able to protect everybody in that type of situation. What I would say is the people who do that, though, they're sharing those secrets anyway, because they've already mm-hmm. collaborated sure. with whomever they're collaborating with in order to get that done. Uh, you know, in, your, in regard to the question about inflation, you know, there's an argument that can be made that when you create, when you pay people well, you pay them what they're worth, the value they bring to the organization, you create an organizational culture that people want to be engaged in and want to stay connected to, you recoup your cost in many ways. Productivity Mm -hmm. decreases in um, absenteeism and tardiness. Uh, You know, the mental health concerns where people are needing to, you know, take time off. And also quitting and turnover and intent to quit the job. So there are ways that uh, companies having to treat their employees well and create spaces that uh, people want to be engaged in and produce for and be efficient in, that can be some significant cost savings uh, in terms of retraining employees and recruitment and the like for people who've bailed on you for the various reasons that have been mentioned. Yeah, and it's a great point that even if, you know, worker X uh, gets a 10% pay raise by going across the street to another company, mm-hmm. that might seem to be a driver of overall costs in the market. But as you say, if that person is going to be more effectively employed, more productive at that new job, you know, they're going to be making a, a market that is essentially producing a better service, probably more efficiently, uh, perhaps at a better price, the kind of thing mm-hmm. that makes things better overall for everybody and doesn't actually wind up costing us more, but actually winds up making things, you know, sort of better. Now, and uh, Amani, one of your thoughts about the bad employees, you know, the people who are going to deal deceptively or whatever. See, I always think of the employers that way, right? Like the <laughs> employers who want to keep all of their people on, you know, their uh, their side and they want to keep them in instead of paying them, rewarding them, incentivizing them to enjoy their jobs. It seems like it's the, the good workplaces that don't fear their mm-hmm. workers leaving because they know they got a good thing going. It's the mediocre to worse workplaces that are like, oh, we got to have these non-competes, man, we <laughs> because that's the only way we can keep people once we got them. Uh, last thought, I want to get your reaction to it, Amani, is I-, I think sometimes we get so accustomed to a thing existing that we never mm-hmm. think to question how crazy it really is. And I was trying to think of a good parallel, and this is not perfect, but this was my thought. Imagine a restaurant that said to you, all right, You can come eat at my restaurant. I will sell you the food. You're going to like it. But you have to promise that once you eat at my restaurant, you never go to another restaurant for six months. And every time you eat here, we renew that deal. You'd never go to that restaurant, right? No, you wouldn't. You definitely wouldn't. I'm going to get canceled, y'all. <laughs> well, we'll move on to something where we can uh, let you back into your sort of uh, uh, familiar, comfortable space uh, ideologically. Okay. When we come back, we'll tackle a simple problem, immigration, here on The Debate. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. 
So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to the debate at Newsweek. Uh, Denise, you have written an article recently pointing out uh, I mean, real fundamental contradictions in the way the government is spending money on immigration or illegal immigration and helping out those who are participating it versus what they aren't spending to help the uh, homeless population that we have, what, maybe 500,000 in the United States. Uh, explain your, your criticism. Yeah, the criticism is really, why are we spending money on a manufacturer crisis, which is only going to infuse money into perpetuating that crisis further and serving that crisis, which by all estimations are a result of President Biden's lack of enforcement of our border and you know, basically creating a sort of revolving door uh, and a line for, you know, asylum seekers. And I'm doing air quotes here for those who can't see me and refugees. Right. It sounded um, like with, air quotes to me. So okay. Exactly, I appreciate that. I'm glad that translated. <laughs> and, that, and the percentage of people who actually end up qualifying for actual asylum and refugee status is relatively small, but then folks are in the country and they just stay here. And so um, my criticism is that we should not be spending this $800 million in grant funds to serve this manufacture crisis. What we absolutely need to be doing is filling the 200 bed gap for Americans who are not able to be housed. You are correct about the 500,000 homeless people roughly. And the fact that there are about three hundred thousand uh, shelters for those people. Um, we need to prioritize that in addition to the fact that the article calls out the ways in which the shelter that we do have is often uh, not safe. Um, it's dangerous for women and children. Uh, it's infested uh, with bed bugs and, 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 and the like. Uh, and we need to be prioritizing those things and enforcing our borders instead of opening our doors to the eight billion people in the world because that line will never end. Before I go to you, Amani, I just want to make sure I understand uh, the, the the general parameters of what you're concerned about. Because the way I, when I read your article, uh, what I thought you were saying is, OK, we've got, you know, 300,000 shelter space. We've got 500,000 homeless. This is a housing shortage, which is part of the much broader housing shortage that the entire country mm -hmm. has, which is causing all sorts of problems. We yeah. shouldn't be letting a lot more people in kind of anywhere on the spectrum, but particularly at the dependency end of the spectrum when we have a shortage because that makes the shortage worse. And we certainly shouldn't be funding them over funding housing or providing shelter space for our citizens. Is that generally the argument? I just want to make sure I kind of understood you. That is absolutely part of it. And what I'm saying also, because this 800,000, this 800 million is specifically for housing 
uh, mm-hmm. these folks who are being brought into the country unnecessarily. That's the other element here. It is unnecessary to do this because this crisis in and of itself is a manufactured crisis by this particular administration. So if we even spend, a, I'm going to make up a number here, but you know, a billion dollars on housing Americans and 800 million on housing these the folks serving this crisis, the problem is not that we are spending more on Americans. And you know, that solves it. We should not be spending this extra money. Period. Because this crisis is manufactured and is. Uh, a problem of lax border security that is purely at the discretion of this administration. So that is the really critical piece of this. I know it's a lot to unpack, but Amani, your thoughts, reactions, wherever you want to go with it. Yes, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, just starting with this issue of the border and immigration has been an issue in every administration as long as I have been alive. Like it is kind of like the issue that will never die. And until we come up with a real long term solution to uh, citizenship or a real pathway to citizenship, then this is something that's just going to continue to come up and up and up and up and up. Um, there's no way for us to. Um, admit asylum seekers into the country because there is no pathway for them to become citizens like once they get here. And this is something that continuously comes up over the years. Um, As far as the homelessness, that is a whole other thing that I do agree uh, wholeheartedly with the Nissan. It's like there's just no reason for such a wealthy country to have so many unhoused folks. Um, There's no reason for so many metropolitan cities to have such um, lack of care for them. There's no I'm in Dallas, Texas, and we have a huge homelessness population that's been brewing um, here recently, like it probably in the last five years or so, we've gotten so many more people that have become unhoused and we still don't even have a centralized homeless shelter. We may have one in the entire city limits. And this is a huge metropolitan city. So there are definitely funds that need to be allocated towards these issues. There's definitely things that need to be dr- addressed as far as the price of housing um, and creating affordable housing options for people who may not be able to be in a particular predicament to afford, you know, living in some luxury high rise. Like there has to be something in between um, and there has to be a way that we can look after these people because, yeah, they are American citizens. So I do see the point that you're bringing up and I see both sides of the argument. But I do think the bigger picture is these people are going to continue to come. There is people in other countries who are in war-torn countries who are looking for safety. And there are other people who may just want to come here for opportunity and a better life. There's different scenarios for all type of people who immigrate to the United States. So we have to figure out a way to address the issue because it's not going away. Um, And the more we put these temporary restraints in place or these temporary solutions in place, it doesn't eliminate the problem. It's just going to proceed to go on. Yeah, the you know I agree with the sense that the you know the homelessness issue uh, is its own enormous problem, mm-hmm. right? And it seems like every not even major, but you know I mean I live in a medium sized city and we have you know huge homeless problem. It seems like that's everywhere. I, I do kind of want to maybe back up just a little bit and look at sort of philosophically at the immigration problem because you know Denise, mm-hmm. you kind of brought something up, and I think it ties in with a couple of other things we've been talking about. Um, I noted that Canada has announced that they want to expand immigration. They want to, you know, have a million and a half immigrants. I think it was per year that they're trying to get to as a goal. Uh, the Biden administration is trying to solve the border crisis now. They say by increasing the number of legal immigrants coming from four key countries, including you know Venezuela, um, uh, Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua, to thirty thousand a month, while turning everybody else away. 
but meanwhile, in America, we have this we have a labor shortage. <laughs> you know, we have not enough people willing to participate in the market. And my just general perspective on, on immigration, feel free to disagree with me, is I want as many people as we can endure to come here if they're going to be productive because they're contributing to the GDP. They are creating more than they consume. They're making our lives better. Other countries hate to lose their productive workers because they're losing their economic base. I want to prohibit illegal immigration 100%, but I want to encourage legal, productive adults you know, who are going to come here and work. I want that as much as we can endure, basically. Denise, sort of philosophically, are you on that page? No, not at all. There should be zero <laughs> tolerance of illegal immigration. And as far as legal immigration is concerned. Oh, no, that's what I said. I said no illegal immigration. I don't no, want I'm just any of that. My position. Okay, good. <laughs> um, and as far as legal immigration is concerned and this idea of a worker shortage, what we're actually seeing is there are plenty of Americans who are willing to work, who are looking for jobs, who are turned away from jobs, particularly Black Americans, right? When you look at the data, when you look at the data on tech workers and the ways in which American workers have been charged with uh, training their replacements um, and the cost that that has had on uh, tech workers, plenty of tech workers who are underemployed and or not employed in their field because of the ways that that employers uh, leverage and weaponize migration in order to negatively, to positively affect their bottom line, so to speak, mm. but it negatively affects American workers. So this idea that we have a labor shortage is, I think, one that we need to probe a bit more. Uh, I don't feel that it is true on its face. There are plenty of American workers who lost their jobs during COVID when this, again, manufacture crisis started, um, who are still struggling to find work. There are ways is that organizations underpay Americans as well for uh, the cost of living in our country, the debts that we have as individual consumers, that the jobs that they are paying us for do not serve our needs well. And I just want to read something really quickly from 2007 from the National Bureau of Economic Research. And here's what they say. In the analysis of uh, the organization that did this report, they find that a 10% rise in migrants in a particular skill group, low skill, high skill, tech, all the like, significantly trimmed the wages of black and white men alike. For African-Americans, the decline was 3.6%. For white, it was actually slightly higher, 3.8%. So beyond that, however, the black-white experience differed markedly, especially for low-skilled workers. And most of the workers, I will say, coming from these countries that you mentioned are folks who do not have a high school diploma, but they have connections and people who help them uh, dovetail into jobs. For example... From 1960 to 2000, Black high school dropouts saw their employment rates drop 33 percentage points from 88.6% to 55.7%. The authors of the report found in their analysis of census data from 1960 to 2000, the decrease for white high school dropouts was only roughly half that, from 94.1% to 76%. That is still quite significant. And so there are ways in which Black Americans and other Americans are negatively infected, affected by immigration. My thought is we need to have a native-born labor sourcing plan, and anything that we are sourcing external to our country needs to be at 
actually based on need and our inability to find American workers who are getting paid good wages, who are occupied and hired in organizations that are treating them well across the board. We need to fix our stuff internally before we say we need to go externally to source from 8 billion other people. So across the board, increases in immigration only wind up competing negatively against American la- labor wages, essentially, and not solving, as Denise mentions, you know, the more specialized shortages that aren't really available in this market that we ought to be targeting for. Amani, your thoughts? Yeah, those are really good points. And I do understand that perspective because people are coming into the country and sometimes they are just looking for opportunities to provide for themselves. So they may accept a job with a lesser rate than the people who were already in the current position, which in turn does what she was saying that it does. So I do see that point of view. Um, But at the same time, I do think, you know, the great American melting pot, if you remember that, like I'm all for immigrants coming in. But again, we have to figure out a way to make it a positive experience for everybody. But again, I do think they should be free to come. But And this is probably what you're talking about is more so an issue with like corporatism and people trying to save a dollar than I think it is with the immigrants themselves. Like it's not their fault, particularly that they're just coming here to find job and opportunity. It's more so something on the corporation's fault that they're looking to get cheaper labor instead of paying the people that are already here. So there are opportunities that we could have maybe some type of government regulations where if you're going to outsource the job, you cannot outsource it at a much cheaper rate in order to save you some money. Maybe that'll um, help boost our American economy. It'll give our American workers an opportunity to compete fairly with their wages. Um, so I think that's more of like a corporatism thing than an immigration thing. I think it's sort of sort of like a like a way like a rent control on wages of sorts in reverse, like you know a threshold <laughs> below which you can't go. Go ahead, Denise. Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. We want to remove the migrants uh, from this equation. And particularly, remember this piece in Newsweek was especially talking about folks who are crossing the border, right? Often on foot. Sometimes they've been trafficked. Sometimes they've been dropped off by smugglers. So there's we want to remove the migrants and their individual decision to violate our immigration laws we want to remove the legislators who've been complicit and allowed this thing to happen we want to remove the president and mayorkas at this point who are making decisions about the implementation of immigration laws all those people all of those organizations the ngos the not-for-profits domestically who enable this the legislators who uh turned a blind eye to it the president who is responsible for implementing it and Mayorkas or whomever else in Homeland Security who's responsible for implementing our our border laws and the human smugglers. All of those stakeholders are complicit in this. And unfortunately, while we may want to allow everyone to come to America or anyone who decides to come to America to come to America, there is a negative impact. And we can't have it all because we do not have unlimited resources. There are a certain number of positions in universities uh, for the next generation of people who are born in America and thus are American citizens. There are a set number of jobs. There are a set number of homeless shelters and beds. We can't have it all. We do have to make a choice uh, about how we're going to spend our money and how we're going to allocate our resources. You know, uh, just uh, one of the interesting things I think I hope we can find agreement on, because I think it was no surprise to anybody that when President Biden went to the border, his critics 
were completely unsatisfied <laughs> with uh, the uh, whatever that was supposed to do. And his advocates were still his advocates. Can we uh, we we shouldn't be surprised by any of that, I think. Uh, we're just about totally out of time. I always like to end on something that's a little bit lighter. And so it, even though it sort of dovetails a little bit with today's conversation, I hadn't intended it. But, you know, sometimes you get lucky. Um, there is a McDonald's. That's a robot run. I mean, there's still people in the back doing the cooking, right? But the interface is with technology only. You order it on your app. A conveyor belt brings it out to you. Um, They're calling it Robot McDonald's. It's a little bit uncharitable. But still, the question (laughs) is, do you favor, would you patronize Robot McDonald's? Amani? No. No, Oh, Denise. (laughs) All right, Denise, you're first. Would you patronize Robot McDonald's? And if not, why not? I would not patronize Robot McDonald's. I think it's appropriately titled. I think that we, again, there is a place for AI and for technology. We have to always be mindful of the fact that there are many American households, including students, uh, young folk, who are learning how to be responsible citizens through going through this process of working at a fast food joint, so to speak, right? And we have to make these kinds of decisions about how we're going to attend to the needs of our fellow citizens and what all of these cost savings, convenience featured uh, elements of life, what they do to uh, affect Americans. And I would, first of all, so there's that part of it as a patriot and pro-American. And I don't want a robot Wow. I, want, I want to actually interact with a human being uh, oh, no, I agree in with that you kind of that. customer service setting. I, I actually like, even if they're not great at their jobs, I like the people, you know, part of it. Plus, my wife always wants extra ketchup packets for her French fries. <laughs> and good luck getting the robot dumbwaiter to uh, give me the extra ketchup packets. Imani, robot McDonald's, yay or nay? Nay, I am against the irobotification of the world. Okay, <laughs> like I feel like y'all just forgot that movie exists, and we're so quick to go into the metaverse and put on our <laughs> our little glasses and download our consciousness into the realm. It scares me. I don't like it, and I would rather talk to people. There's Thanks. no no example of a movie that I can name where we empower the robots and it turns out well for us, <laughs> whether it's War it. Games or Terminator or anything else. You know, Judgment Day comes Wally. when that, that well, hmm, I'm not sure more of that empowered our uh, our, our uh, <laughs> obesity. Um, last one, just a quick one, because it's kind of also been in the news is. The another major move by the Biden administration is apparently to recommend the elimination of gas stoves. I don't want to talk about Mm. the environment or the pollution or the danger. I just want to know, do you prefer to cook with an electric or a gas stove? Amani? Touche. I'm going to say electric because that gas, I don't like the smell of gas. Um, And it scares me. (laughs) Like you fall asleep with that gas stove on, your house will explode. It's very dangerous. So I actually see why they're doing that. Um, And then just for personal reasons, I would rather have my good old fashioned electric. I don't want to burn myself. I don't want my cat to get set on fire. So We'll just do that. A lot of a lot of um, fear of uh, pyro uh, uh, paranoia there. I I appreciate that. Uh, Denise, electric or gas stove? Yo, I'm a preppy and I hang with preppers. Uh, And so I would say gas for me from a function perspective. And I honestly think it generally cooks better. But when the electricity goes out, I absolutely know how to safely light my gas burner. I, I live in a hurricane area. I hate being dependent on electrical for anything, even mm-hmm. though my wife has made us have electric stoves, even though I'm the cook. It's simple for me. 
<laughs> I can never get it wrong which burner I've turned on on a gas stove. I always get it wrong which <laughs> right. burner I have turned on on the electric stove. So for me, it's really just that simple. Ladies, uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Amani Wells and Yoha is a political organizer and director of operations at Soul Strategies. Pamela Denise Long, columnist and CEO at Youth Centrics Therapy Services. Thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. We'll catch you next time on The Debate at Newsweek. Newsweek.